0: Today we actually conclude our seven-week series through the book of Esther. We have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are in exile. They are living at the mercy of a foreign government, the Persian Empire. And God called his people to submit and honor and serve and pray for the empire, to seek its welfare. But as we've seen, the main characters in this story have had to learn to do that faithfully. They've had to learn to trust God and to act with courage and faith, even when faced with deep darkness, even when faced with the annihilation of their people, and even when God himself was seemingly absent. Back in chapter 3, King Ahasuerus promoted a man named Haman above all the other officials in the kingdom. And the king commanded everyone to bow down and pay homage to Haman, and everyone did so. Everyone, that is, except for Mordecai the Jew. For a variety of reasons, which we have already discussed, Mordecai refused to acknowledge the authority of Haman. Chapter 3, verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury and he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So they cast pur, that is they cast lots before Haman day after day and they cast it month after month Till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. In short, Haman gets upset that one Jew is disrespecting him, and so he resolves to annihilate every Jew in the empire. And he casts Purr to determine when this genocide would take place. Essentially, Haman is rolling the dice to determine when to annihilate the Jewish people. Now, fast forward from chapter 3 to chapter 9. At this point in the story, King Ahasuerus has executed Haman for his treachery and every other enemy of the Jewish people throughout the empire has been defeated. The Jewish people are delivered at last. And represented by Esther and Mordecai, the Jewish people have ascended to a place of great authority within the Persian government. The queen of Persia and the king second in command are both Jews. In fact, if if I could jump ahead briefly, I think that's basically the purpose and message of Esther chapter 10, which is only three verses long. We see that Mordecai is a new Joseph figure. Joseph was second in command to the Egyptian Pharaoh. He instituted a kingdom-wide tax to preserve the welfare of the people, and he was loved by all his brothers. We see Each of those same elements in Esther chapter 10, but in reference to Mordecai. Mordecai is a new Joseph figure. Okay, back to chapter 9. Whiplash, I get it. As this story comes to a close, we see that the light has overcome the darkness. The Jews have defeated their enemies, and all that's left now is to institute a feast to commemorate this great moment in the history of Israel. As I said back when we began this study, the book of Esther tells the origin story of a Jewish feast called Purim. And as we have seen, the book of Esther is itself full of feasts. And today we will see what we can learn from the feast of Purim. Chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts To the poor. So, all throughout the empire, the Jews inaugurate an annual two day feast. Their sorrow has turned to gladness, their mourning has turned to holiday, and Mordecai orders that they commemorate this deliverance by sharing meals and by caring for the poor. This was a feast marked by joy and hospitality and care for the poor. And why is it called Purim? Because, verse 24, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast Pur, that is, cast lots to, to crush and to destroy them. Again, Haman cast Pur, he cast lots to determine when to annihilate the Jews. And by the grace of God, the genocide was delayed by 11 months. And we see here in chapter 9 that the Jews had come to attribute this delay to the sovereign hand of God. Haman cast the purr, but the date was fixed by God. And ultimately, this provided the time necessary for Haman's plot to backfire on him. Over the past few weeks, we've seen the sovereign hand of God at work all throughout the story of Esther. Coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. The name of God is never mentioned, and he never speaks. But it is clear that he is nonetheless present and actively involved. But specifically, the Jewish people came to consider Haman's casting of the purr to be a symbol of God's providential intervention. A symbol of his invisible hand working in the background. Ultimately, it was God who had delivered his people, absent though he seemed. And verse 26, therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. They called the feast Purim so as to acknowledge the sovereign hand of God in reversing their fortunes, in accomplishing their deliverance, in defeating their enemies. Their situation had appeared Hopeless, But even in the darkness, even in the darkness, God was guiding the narrative, caring for his people, protecting them, fighting their battles, and prospering them. Now, it's, it's pretty common for Christians to talk about how um, the Passover feast or the Feast of Tabernacles find their fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. But but what about Purim? What can we learn about the Lord's Supper from the Feast of Purim? After all, Purim is said to be a perpetual feast for the people of God from generation to generation. So if Purim has not in some way been fulfilled or subsumed, absorbed by the Lord's Supper, then perhaps we should still be observing it. Let's see what we can learn from it. First, let's consider what was originally being celebrated. In Esther chapter 9, God's enemies have been defeated. God's people have been delivered. A new ruler has ascended to a place of supreme authority. A bride has been chosen to rule and reign alongside the king. And the people are instructed to hold a perpetual feast of gladness, hospitality, remembrance, and care for the poor. And of course, we could say all of those same things about the Lord's Supper, right? Jesus has defeated the enemies of God on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. God's people have been delivered. Jesus has ascended to a place of supreme authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the king of kings. And his bride, the church, has been chosen to rule and reign alongside him. And Jesus has instructed us to hold a perpetual feast of gladness, hospitality, remembrance, and I would submit to you, care for the poor. The overlap is striking. There are numerous similarities between the context within which Purim was instituted and the context within which the Lord's Supper was instituted. And I don't think it's a stretch to conclude that the Lord's Supper ought to be characterized by many of the same things. Like Purim, the Lord's Supper should be accompanied by gladness, hospitality, remembrance, and care for the poor. Now, over the centuries, the Jewish people have added a number of different customs to their observance of Purim. If you were to visit a synagogue during the Feast of Purim, it would be a loud, lively, and joy-filled experience. The scroll of Esther is read straight through. If you think our readings are long, visit a synagogue during the Feast of Purim. The congregation is buzzing. There are cheers and there's cheers and laughter whenever Esther and Mordecai are mentioned. There are boos and foot stomping whenever Haman is mentioned. In fact, people will actually write the name "Haman" on the bottom of their shoes for their stomping. The children dress up as the characters in this play and, and the characters in this story, and they put on a play. The people greet one another by delivering food to one another, and special attention is given to feeding the poor and hungry. And this is consistent with the Bible's understanding of a true feast. Feasting is not a lavish opportunity for the wealthy to stuff their faces. Feasting is a lavish opportunity to practice hospitality and care for the poor. In addition, there's a a tradition of what's referred to as proclaiming the miracle. Proclaiming the miracle. The congregation actively participates in the reading of the story. They have portions to recite in unison. Why? Well, because it's not enough to to passively listen and silently watch as this story is read over you. Proper remembering requires that we speak and actively engage with the story. It's like the Apostle Paul saying that as often as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. Proper remembering requires a participatory liturgy, not not a passive reading, not a silent ritual. And And so this is what I want us to see. For the Jewish community, the Feast of Purim is an elaborate participatory ritual. And many of the customs are, frankly, out of the ordinary. They're strange. But really, I think that is the whole point. We have a lot to learn from the Jewish community about how to remember God's past faithfulness and how to maintain our distinctiveness as a minority community. For human beings and for human communities, true remembering is not just a cognitive exercise. True remembering is not accomplished by having a moment of silence. It requires more than just our minds to remember fully. We perform specific actions and we speak specific words. True remembering is placing a tree in your living room and covering it with lights and ornaments, lighting candles, singing carols, exchanging gifts, And sharing a meal. That is true remembering. True remembering is blocking off your street. Wearing red, white, and blue. Listening to patriotic music. Grilling burgers and hot dogs. And shooting off fireworks. That is true remembering. True remembering is taking your seat in this sanctuary. Singing songs. Praying prayers. Kneeling for confession. Lifting your hands. Greeting others listening to readings, listening to teachings, and sharing bread and wine together. That is true remembering. So we we have every reason to come in here on Sunday mornings prepared to engage, prepared to actively engage in some true remembering together. When a Jewish community uh, celebrates the Feast of Purim, it's natural for children and for visitors to ask for an explanation for all of these strange customs. It's expected that they will ask. And, and the book of Esther is the explanation. And the same is true of our children and our visitors. Christian worship should not be like anything else we experience during the week. Christian worship is supposed to be a bit strange, out of the ordinary. It's supposed to elicit questions what we do here and the manner in which we do it ought to demand an explanation. And when our children ask or when our visitors ask, we have the opportunity to share the story of all stories. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the explanation for everything we do together as a Christian community. We believe our God entered into this world as a newborn human He stepped into our darkness in order to teach us how to live, in order to proclaim the coming of his kingdom of peace and righteousness, and in order to bear the consequences of our sin and rebellion. He was willing to have his body broken and his blood poured out for our redemption and for the salvation of the whole world. And so, as we eat this bread, his body, as we drink this wine, his blood, we are remembering, yes, but we are also proclaiming the miracle until he comes. The miracle of his coming and of his coming again. Until he comes, he has instructed us to hold this, this perpetual feast of gladness and hospitality and remembrance and care for the poor. And, just like the Feast of Purim, I think we should see in the Lord's Supper, we should see and experience in the Lord's Supper, the sovereign hand of God at work in our circumstances. Even when the world is shrouded in darkness, even when our situation appears hopeless, even when our God seems absent, He has taught us to trust Him and to keep on hoping. We know that He is with us. We know that He is on our side. And we know that He is guiding the narrative, and caring for us, protecting us, and fighting our battles, and ultimately, in the end, prospering us. Let's be honest. We are never quite as in control as we like to pretend. Much of the time we are anxious for very good reason. Because we cannot control our lives. We are not in control. But for those who trust in the God of Esther, that's okay. It's okay to not be in control because God alone is sovereign over Per, God alone is sovereign over the purr above all I think that is what we learn from the book of Esther God in this book is invisible he is inaudible he is nowhere to be found and yet he is front and center the book of Esther teaches us to speak these words from the book of Job Behold, I go forward, but God is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Whatever darkness you are facing. Whether darkness in this world or darkness in your workplace or darkness in your home or darkness in your own mind. You have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. To trust the sovereign hand of God and to be a light to those around you. In a world of darkness, Jesus offers Purim. A feast of gladness, hospitality, remembrance, and care for the poor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your presence. Even in the darkness. You you have promised that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. So we trust you. Help us to trust you. To trust that that you are in control. and, And... We confess that we are not. Jesus, you have brought joy and gladness and holiday to a world of darkness. We praise you as our deliverer and our king. Holy Spirit, make us deeply rooted and yet festive. Make us a deeply rooted yet festive community. And and teach us to care for the poor in accordance with our calling as your people.